Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. I've missed chatting with you all. Have you missed me? Well, this was a good summer break. Um, I guess before I dive in, I should say, um, if anyone's new here, hello, my name is Gabriela Campbell. I am a graduate student in anthropology at George Mason University. Um, I'm the host, producer, and editor of this podcast. And get ready, this is our third year, over three years. We hit three years in July. July 15th was the three-year anniversary of that anthro podcast. So yeah, if you're new here, thanks for joining. Um, If you've been patiently waiting over my summer break, thank you for waiting. Um, I'm glad to be back. I'll be posting bi-weekly episodes from now until Christmas time. And by the end, uh, by December, yeah, there'll be a pretty big, exciting announcement for season four. So stay tuned. Um, Thank you again for those of you that have been patiently waiting. Um, this is a great episode. It is with my professor, uh, Dr. Jamie Clark. She's an archaeologist and zoo archaeologist who studies human environmental relationships um, at George Mason University, where I'm a graduate student. I have been wanting and hoping for Dr. Clark to come on the podcast for a while now, so I'm really glad that we we're finally able to make it happen, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Next episode will be another George Mason scholar. She's an Egyptologist, so stay tuned for that. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jamie Clark. Um, So Dr. Jamie Clark is my professor. Um, She's a professor at George Mason University in case this is going to be one of the first episodes back after my summer break. So people, if anyone's new here, I attend George Mason University. I'm a master's student in anthropology. Um, So if you would just briefly introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Yes, as you said, I'm Jamie Clark. I am a faculty member here at George Mason. This is my fourth year here. Um, And prior to arriving here, I was a faculty member at University of Alaska Fairbanks for eight years. Um, I am an archaeologist uh, and I study sort of the later phases of human evolution, which means for my purposes, mostly sort of from 80,000 years to about 20,000 years ago, which is a time period where we see Um, A lot of changes, of course, in human evolution. We see the sort of disappearance of archaic species like the Neanderthals, um, and we see the spread of modern humans pretty much around the entire globe. So I'm interested in the sort of behaviors that are underlying those processes. And I carry out my work in Southern Africa and mostly in the Southern Levant or the Near East. Awesome. How are you feeling about this year so far? We're what, 
four weeks in. This is week five already. Week five, After, okay. at, by the end of this week, we are a third of the way done already, which is insane. <laughs> okay, that hurts my brain. I a little know. Bit. It feels <laughs> like we just started. We did just start. I don't know. Yes, I, I have my first exam in one of my classes this week. So okay. that's how I know we're like every every five weeks we have a test. So yeah. yeah. What class is that that you're teaching? It is semester? called Unearthing the Past. Oh. Which is just an introduction to archaeology. I'm not sure why we don't just call it introduction to archaeology. It's a bit more fun that way. I like it. Well, the students come in and they're not 100% sure what to expect, actually. I have a lot Mm. of students who come in and think it's going to be a world prehistory class where, you know, you do that survey of of human evolution. um, Or like from from the earliest stone tools up to states and empires. But that's actually a different class. Okay. And so like on the first day, I have to be like, that's not what we're doing here. And you can see some people, their faces just fall. I'm like, that's anthropology. 121 which is next semester yeah which you do teach I do teach that yeah we didn't have one of those um classes at Mason um every I've taught it at many different universities um so yes we do have that here now as wonderful okay so I'm glad the semester is going well for you it's definitely flying by for me um and I started a new job and so that's just been like all over the place yeah but honestly I'm very I'm I see the light at the end of the tunnel I'm looking forward to be done done with classwork and getting into thesis stuff are you taking one class this semester I'm taking two oh you're taking two yeah I'm taking bioarch theory and um medical anth with with oh, Dr. Nice. Morris getting um, a little bit of cultural impact yeah I, I I love it and honestly when I signed up for classes I thought my um thesis project was going to be on the bioarchaeology of care so okay. that was why I signed up for medical and right um it is no longer going to be on that so I, I enjoyed the first day of class and I thought I would just stick around I really like Dr. Morris he's really good it, I feel the same way with you where you're good at like facilitating discussions and it is an undergrad grad mixed class but it's been really good so far right. um and I've been enjoying it um so let's dive into your educational background. Okay. Um, you did your undergrad in history, which was interesting to know, um, at Northwestern. And I'm curious to um, hear how you were even like introduced to the subject of anthropology. Was it in college? Right. Was it prior? Um, it was in college. So I am a first-generation college student. Um, I grew up in the rural South. The town that I grew up in, in Kentucky, had about, I think, like 7,000 people when I lived there. So it was very small. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, like I, I grew up in the 80s, so I was like very familiar with Indiana Jones, but like I had no sense that like archaeology was actually something you could do with okay. your life. Um, so I actually went to undergrad to study journalism. Um, oh. And then very quickly realized, at least at that point in my life, I did not like talking to strangers. Okay. <laughs> um, so after a year in the journalism school at Northwestern, I was like, okay, no, I need to transfer to the like College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and you know, like any 19 year old college student who doesn't really know what they want to do. I was like, okay, what should my major be? Mm-hmm. Well, I've taken history classes <laughs> to meet my gen ed requirements. So let's just major in history. Um, not the best reason to declare a major. <laughs> not an uncommon story. Though. Not an uncommon story. Um, and in at at Northwestern in the history major, you choose a concentration in a world area. And so I decided on Africa, Middle East, um, as my funny, that's where I work now. Yeah. Um, But and so it but it wasn't really so a lot of the classes that they had were focused on sort of later periods of history. Um, But they taught one class that was on ancient Egypt, but like in the history department, I'm like, okay, this is cool. And I was like, okay, this is something that I'm interested sort of in 
but like as we got earlier and earlier in history, I got more interested in it. Okay. Um, my first anthropology class actually was completely unrelated to any of this. It was an intro to cultural anthropology. That's um, everyone's first class. And I, I took feel a, like a gen ed class, yes. right? Um, but when I took the when I took the ancient Egypt class, then I like the next semester I signed up for a class that was actually an art history that was on prehistoric and archaic art fascinating yeah. but then I started to sort of wondered like what do we actually know how do we know anything about these prehistoric artists so like I asked yeah. my instructor or professor who actually had training in archaeology and they were like well you should take an archaeology class and so it actually wasn't until my junior year the first uh, we had quarters there instead of semesters the first quarter of my junior year I took intro to archaeology and I was like wait this is what I want to do yeah. but like by the beginning of my junior year I was not in a position that I could be more than four years in undergrad I did not have the money for that um, so I could minor in anthropology, but I couldn't major. Um, and the nice thing about the minor there was that, I mean, actually many places minors are like, it was quite flexible. So you had to take mm. an intro class yeah. and in then different subfields, like... and then I could just take, you know, four archaeology class, you know, like, and so I just took yeah. a lot of archaeology, um, mm -hmm. and then went to grad school in archaeology. So awesome. Oh, what was your first impression after that cultural anth class? Cause like I said, I feel like that's a really common one for people to take. And it's, and it's interesting because I feel like people either love it or hate it and decide they may be like, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I think I was like sort of ambivalent to the course. So, because when I took the course, I wasn't like, oh, I need to go out and take more anthropology. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought it was interesting, but it didn't sort of resonate with me yeah. as sort of a direction I wanted to go in. And then Got when it. I came back to be the minor, I'm like, oh, well, I already took my cultural anthropology class, right? But it was like a little different in a way, because I think if I had already known I was going to do archaeology or declared a minor before I took it, I might have thought about it a little bit mm -hmm. differently. Because I, I mean, I do think cultural anthropology, like, I, I believe in a four-field holistic For anthropology, sure. and I think understanding cultural anthropology is actually really important to how we think about past human behavior. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have that lens when I was thinking about it as an undergrad because yeah. I, I kind of took it as just as a gen ed class. Yeah, like separate. didn't file it away for later. Right. I yeah. get that. Yeah, my first class was a cultural anth class. I took it in high school through our community college. They we li were like down the street from a community college, so they let us take um like cross enroll. Um, and it was super interesting because at the time I knew I wanted to go into, um, at that time I thought forensic anthropology, but just like generally anthropology. And I really did like take things from it and I still have like distinct memories of it to this day. So how did you decide that you wanted to pursue a graduate education? Because obviously that's a lot of commitment. You said you were a first generation college student, you know, quite the, not only financial commitment, but emotional commitment to get a graduate degree um so once I decided that it was what I wanted to do I was sort of immediately aware that I would need to go to yeah. graduate school <laughs> because you know that's the nature if you if you're interested in doing research and if you might be interested in teaching that's the direction you have to go in mm -hmm. um and I, I didn't actually even look at doing a master's first because I knew I couldn't afford it mm -hmm. and so I did not maybe do the smartest thing I only <laughs> applied to three programs um some of which were two of which were the top two no, okay. um but I was sort of like okay and because I also I had faculty you know even though so I was a history major so of course I had a primary advisor in the history department who also interestingly dabbled in archaeology a bit in, in their past but um in my minor I had really good advising from Dr. Timothy Earle and Dr. Gil Stein 
Um, and they sort of said, okay, if you, if you want to do this, you have to go to graduate school, you have to do a top program because, you know, even, even back then it was sort of like clear that like, if you look at who the jobs are going to, it's from a very small selection yeah. of the programs. And so like, they were like, if you want to do this, you need to go in that direction. Yeah. So, and you landed at the university of Michigan. I landed at the university of Michigan. And how did you like Michigan? Quite, quite a difference from like Kentucky and not really yes. so much from Northwest. Not really so much. Yeah. Still in the Midwest. But I know. Definitely a lot colder. When people ask me where I'm from, I always am like, how do I describe where I'm from? Because neither of my parents are from the South. In fact, okay. both of them are from the Midwest. So I sort of feel oh, like I'm from the Midwest. Okay. And then I did college and grad school there, which are like such foundational yes. years. So mm-hmm. I kind of consider myself Midwestern. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I miss the lakes. So that's the nice thing about Northwestern's mm-hmm. campus. It's on Lake Michigan, yes. which is really, really nice. And I'm like, oh, water. I miss water. Yes. Um, but no, being in, being Ann Arbor was great. I actually miss Ann Arbor. There's good food. There's good music. Uh, there's good. culture. I used to be really into football. I mean, now I've sort of, I'm far enough removed from like yeah. that world to not pay so much attention to Michigan football anymore. Yeah. But like at the time it was really great. So yeah. Um, are there any lessons from your graduate career that, um, you kind of either use in your advising or just are things that you reflect on as really pivotal experiences or lessons? So one of the choices I was making when going to grad school, and honestly, it was really just a reflection of the fact that I didn't want to go into more debt because I had debt from undergrad, which is like, don't go into a graduate program unless it's funded. Yes. yes. Um, because yes. did everyone hear that? Don't, especially a PhD program. Don't go to a PhD program unless it's funded. Right. Because the last thing I needed was more debt to come out of. Mm-hmm. And actually what was so, so the three programs that I applied to were Michigan, Arizona, and UCLA. And oh, I actually wow. didn't get accepted to UCLA because they were like the things that you want to do, like that you say you want to do, do not match yeah. the faculty. So no. So I got accepted to Michigan and to Arizona. And in fact, neither of them gave me funding um, because they both are very large, very competitive programs. And Arizona was like, oh, it's so cheap to live in Tucson. Go do contract archaeology to like pay for your classes. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh. But I was fortunate because I got a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. And so then both universities were like, okay, if you come in with that, that provides three years of tuition plus a stipend. And they said, you know, if you come in with that three years of funding, then we'll sort of cover you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so the the funding piece is really important. Um, I guess I would also say if you have, if you have listeners who are thinking about applying mm-hmm. for graduate school, find a mentor in your undergraduate program who can help you yes. with an application for the GRFP. Yes, because that's huge, and it means that like if you can, if if even like let's just say you apply to a top program, like you get waitlisted or mm-hmm. something. If you get that, you yes. can go in March and be like, hey, by the way, I have my own funding. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, um, you yeah. have your own funding. Yeah. Even telling people that you're applying for the NSF GRFP is kind of a, in my experience, when I was considering applying for it, um, people really like to hear that you're on the NSF GRFP track. So yeah, if people are confused, that's the uh, National Science Foundation's graduate research fellowship, fellowship um, that we're talking about, which is quite a significant amount of funding. But you can also apply for it, like say you were to do your master's somewhere else, you could apply for it at the end of your master's for your PhD. I know um, several of um, people may know, like my roommates last year that were second years in the program were applying for that for their PhD. I don't think any of them 
got it yeah I don't think it's like a, like I don't I don't mind saying it because they all ended up getting individual funding and now we're at ha happily at PhD programs but yeah it's definitely a really great source and very competitive and definitely something like a very prestigious when people come to me and say I want to go to graduate school I mean, one of my questions is, is why, you know, what yeah. do you want to do with your life? Yeah. Um, because, and it, but I mean, it's, and you know, if they're like, oh, I want to be a professor, it's like, okay, well, you know, given, you know, I think there was a study that came out a few years ago that was tracking, it was like four to five years after PhD, how many people that present finished their PhD that year were in a tenure track position and yeah. like in archaeology, it was like 2.5%. And it's like, that's 2.5% of people who get PhD. Yeah. Um, that's a little. That's not yeah. so great. Um, yeah. Um, so I, do, I, you know, I, people really, it, they needed to be a passion, but when they're thinking about the programs, I mean, I think the advice that I got, even if it's sort of like cynical, which is like, if you don't go to a top program, it's maybe not worth it. It's, it kind of still stands because there was even a there was a publication maybe in like it was like American Antiquity or one of one of the big journals like in the last two years that that said okay today where are we like if we mm -hmm. look at the top pro like if we look at who got the jobs and where yeah. did they get their PhDs and like most of the people who are getting the jobs are from like the top five programs and like let's say there are 55 programs and is that so like, like specifically archaeology that's, that was archaeology okay. specifically yeah. um so it still matters. Yeah. Um, and, you know, cause like so, some people give advice that like, oh, it doesn't matter about the program. You need to find the person who does the research that you're interested yeah, in. Yeah, I tend to feel more. Yeah. So, I mean, right. And that's tricky because, you know, going to the person who does the sort of precise thing that you want to do obviously can be incredibly important, right? Having a mentor that does what you want to do is important. Yeah. Um, but it is something to consider. Yeah, it is. Um, and actually... I mean, it's kind of funny. So different programs approach graduate admissions differently. And it's not something you can necessarily know yeah. from the outside, or it's not even necessarily something you can pick up from like websites or doing research, which, so like at University of Michigan, right? When you're doing an application, you have to say what you want to study. Mm -hmm. um, and at some universities, you're kind of held to that. Like if you say you're going to yeah. study X, you're mm -hmm. put with faculty member Y, and then there's not really any flexibility. Mm -hmm. But like at the time when I was going to Michigan, they were like, okay, yes, you wrote that you were interested in doing this, but when you come in, you're not any one student. And mm -hmm. as you're here, you will identify, you will gravitate towards the person. And when I applied, I said I was going to work on the origins of agriculture in West Africa, completely different <laughs> than what I ended up yeah. doing. Like, cause at Northwestern, one thing I never did was take a, like a paleolithic, like a stone, anything oh, that yeah. touched on the stone age. Okay. And so then in my first year of my graduate program, you know, they have basically the equivalent of like world prehistory, but it's two semesters and it's at the graduate level. And so I was, I took this class where we delved really deeply into paleolithic archaeology. And I was like, wait, this is what I want okay. to do. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I, my advisor was Dr. John Speth, who's now been retired for almost a decade, which is crazy. Applies. <laughs> um, and that was what he worked on. And yeah. so, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that's also interesting the time that you're getting into Paleolithic archaeology because so much is changing. I feel like, yes. I mean, it always is when it comes to human evolution, but I feel like that time period, especially so much new information is coming to light about whether that just be like hominin species, DNA methods, like it's a lot is changing. Yeah. The textbooks that you're reading are changing as you're reading them. Did you feel that in your studies? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I always like to tell students, like when I started graduate school, you had a majority of archaeologists and biological anthropologists who were arguing that Neanderthals made no contribution to, yeah. you know, modern human DNA. And what was interesting is that Michigan was always an outlier. So the, the very famous and lovely biological anthropologist, Dr. Milford Wolpoff, who was on my committee, and my advisor, John Speth, like their whole careers, they had been like, no, Neanderthals are relevant to this question, mm -hmm. and Neanderthals are really smart. Like, so they were always sort of yeah. making that argument. So it was like, while I was in grad school that, you know, the, the Neanderthal genome gets published, and that's so like, they were very sort of, mm -hmm. I feel like, vindicated in a way, like the things that they, they had been saying were actually yeah. like, oh, right, uh-huh. Um, and so that was... So being there to watch that happen, watch everything happen, that was like, it was cool. Yeah, very cool. And now, you know, as you're teaching, for example, like I took a class with you where it wasn't focused on, you know, Paleolithic humans, but we did like mention it, which was the archaeology of climate change, which we'll get into later. Um, things are still changing and our understandings of whether it be Denisovans or other, or is it Denisovans? I don't know. I've heard everyone says it differently. I say Denisovans. Denisovans. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, it, it's just const, constantly changing, but I feel like definitely for the better. Um, one of my former professors always used to comment, one of these days a Neanderthal is just going to melt right out of the ice and we're just going to have like an actual like person yeah, I mean, that's one of those sort of crazy things, too. Like, when I started graduate school, when we were thinking about sort of which hominins were walking around the landscape 50,000 years ago, it was Neanderthals and modern humans. And, then like, maybe some remnant Homo erectus population mm -hmm. in Asia that we don't fully understand. And, like, since 2002, when I started grad school, we've add, added the Denisovans and the... Um, the Hobbit. Oh, yes. Um, Homo Florians. Right. So we've added multiple species to the yeah. picture, you know, that are, well, and now I guess the dating for that is always changing. So it's a little bit more than 50,000 years old now that we, now that the cave has been better dated. But like this idea that like five human species yeah. were wandering around and like the Denisovans, we only like, you know, the, we know about them because of the DNA, mm -hmm. right? Like in, in terms of the numbers of fossils we have, they're limited mm -hmm. and there weren't like, it wasn't like, you know, like the Neanderthals in addition to being like a genetic species were like a morphological species. So when you see a Neanderthal, mm -hmm. it looks it, a classic Neanderthal, yeah. you know, but with the Denisovans, as far as I know, they haven't been able to identify any like unique traits that you could mm -hmm. like look at the bone yeah. and be like, that's the, the Denisovans. The, the fragments are so small and right. like limited. And, and I think the like type one was a, like a finger bone, like a, yeah. you know, it's not going to be Diagnostic. No, it's not. Um, so transitioning back to your graduate education, what was your dissertation on? So I worked in Southern Africa um, in the Middle Stone Age. Um, my dissertation very specifically was working at a site called Sabudu Cave. Um, so at that time, it was a sort of a primarily South African project. The director was um, Dr. Lynn Wadley, who is at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, and that site has deposits that span from 80,000 years ago to about 30,000 years ago. But I was very specifically interested in the sort of mystery um, surrounding a time period known as the Howison's Port. So the dates for the Howison's Port have kind of like shifted as we have new dating methods somewhere like 65 to 60,000 years ago. Um, and this is a time period in the South African record where we start seeing sort of technology and material culture that we tend to associate with advanced behavior, sort of in the like 
some of the like terminology we've moved away from now, which I think is for the best, but like we used to call it like modern behavior. Mm. And it's like, what is modern behavior? Yeah, compared to like amorphous. primitive behavior. Yeah, yeah, like so like what, but like, but so we'll say advanced behaviors mm-hmm. that we weren't pri- previously seeing evidence for. So we have what are called microlithic stone tools. We have much more standardization in stone tool types. Um, there are what might be bone points. You know, mm-hmm. this, there is an argument that there's potentially bow and arrow being practiced there, which is much, much earlier than our previous evidence for the earliest bow and arrow material culture that we're seeing in that period at some sites in Southern Africa include engraved ostrich eggshell. So things that are sort of like art or maybe personal Mm -hmm. ornaments, we don't fully understand what they were all being used for. Um, So that time period, so after 60,000 years ago, we see the Howison's port at a number of sites sort of in Southern Africa, um, it goes away. Mm -hmm. So, and it's replaced Sometimes it's referred to as the post Howison's Port Middle Stone Age. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as MSA three, depending on who you who you're talking to and how they define stone tool technologies. But there you see a return to sort of more expedient technology. There's less standardization. The tool forms are much more like basic. There's less skill involved in their manufacture. Mm-hmm. And then at least in terms of things that sort of preserve to become part of the archeological record, um, the durable things that sort of indicate more advanced sort of cultural behavior. So the engraved ostrich eggshell and stuff, it goes away. Mm-hmm. And so if these are the sort of behaviors that we thought were giving, you know, our species an advantage over the Neanderthals and others this more advanced culture, like, why would it make sense that those things would go away, mm-hmm. right? And that had kind of been a question, you know, some people were proposing there were like some kind of like population extinction, like mm-hmm. small scale extinctions or whatnot. But like we have sites like Subudu where I was working on that, that are like, for like, as far as the resolution we can get at a Paleolithic site, they're like essentially continuously occupied. Mm-hmm. So there are people there very soon after the Howison's port, mm-hmm. right? And you know, like that kind of like advanced behavior, you can't like flip a switch on and off in the brain, mm-hmm. right, right? Like once you have the capacity to make that, yeah. like, right, we, we can assume you're not necessarily going to see those things in the record as soon as that capacity is present. Yeah. But like once the capacity is there, it's not like it goes away. For sure. So there are reasons that they're choosing not to do those things anymore. Yeah. And the question is sort of, so I was interested in sort of what sort of happening there. And like for my dissertation, so I was looking at the animal bones specifically, um, and you know, the site has stuff sort of from before, like, you know, much before the Howison sport and, and significantly later, but it's a really incredibly rich site. And so there was like no universe in like one dissertation, which you could look at the whole sequence. Mm-hmm. And so for my dissertation, I looked specifically at the Howison sport and that thing that came immediately after it. And when the Howison sport disappears, it's also associated with the shift from what's known as marine isotope stage four to marine isotope stage three, which means you're going from a glacial period to an interglacial period that happens at 60,000 years, 60 to 58,000 years ago. So right when this transition is happening, mm-hmm. which is when I start thinking about like, you know, the question is what, what role did climate play and how can we begin to assess that? So I was yeah. looking at the animal bones, both to see, can we see anything in the animal bones that are telling us anything about environmental change, but like also, can we see anything that relates to differences in hunting that might change the differences in technology, different ways they're using the landscape, that we can come up with things to sort of explain what me, what might be happening in yeah. this transition. Um, I have a question for the listeners because okay. I learned about this in your class, okay. um, but I didn't give you time to prepare for it so we can maybe okay. kind of workshop it. But I think it can be really interesting to kind of um, explain how we know that there were glacial and interglacial periods through marine isotopes, um, because it, it is very fascinating if we think we can distill that in like a 
in a way. Um, and if you think not, we can just cut this. Oh yeah, I just, no. I mean, I would say if we're thinking about how how these global time periods were established, it's both through the collection of like ocean cores. Mm -hmm. So you know, and then what they're looking at is um, variation in stabilized steps, which we cannot go no, into a detailed explanation fine. of what stabilized no. steps are. Um, but what they can do is they can see shifts in usually defined uh, based on oxygen isotopes, which are telling us depending on where it's being, they're also sampling from glacier, you know, like glaciers, ice caps in Greenland mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can track essentially periods of shifts between cold and warm mm -hmm. cycles, right? Yeah. Um, and that's cold and warm in a general sense, right? Yeah. Because when we're talking about a glacial period, it's not going to be expressed the same everywhere. But yeah. generally speaking, that's a period when the ice caps are expanding. Um, and then our interglacial periods are the periods where the glaciers globally are shrinking. But that doesn't mean sort of warmer every place, yeah. right? And I think when people, when we first started mapping these sort of global cycles, um, there was sort of an assumption that maybe they would be expressed similarly everywhere and mm -hmm. now we know I mean as we get more and more like local signatures we see that that's not true at all mm -hmm. and that was one of these questions in South Africa because like arguably we generally think about like the the interglacial or sometimes they're referred to as interstadials because you have little mm -hmm. short short periods of of like cooling that's called a stadial not a glacial um so when you're looking at these interstadials or interglacials like we oftentimes think that's better because like mm -hmm. we oftentimes associate it with like warm and wet but in a way that made this question of what was happening in South Africa even sort of more fraught because like if it's getting better why do why we see is these this... things like go away? Yeah. Like what's happening? Like that if it like things are getting worse, you might argue of different kinds of intensification happening, mm -hmm. but like it's getting better. But it ha that's not yeah. usually how we think about things. So. Yeah, but then of course the question becomes, which I'm sure you you would have gotten into, what is better for yes. the environment that the, that the hominids are existing in? Yes. Um, you know, and so that's fascinating. And thank you for explaining that to people because you know I learned that in in class and I think it's relevant when, when we dive into talks about climate change you know how how scientists know what we know Klaus always say that how do we know what we know and how do we know what we think we know you know so I think it's important to kind of dive into some of the methods because um it's it's important um so you mentioned that um, in Sabudu Cave, you were working with the animal remains. Yes. So um, that specialization is known as zoo archaeology. Um, so you are an archaeologist with a specialty in zoo archaeology. Is that kind of how you... Yeah, I mean, explain? it's funny. I mean, I think you've had you've had archaeologists on before. Yes. Yes. And, and so, one zoo archaeologist yeah, and a so long time ago. Archaeology has become so specialized. And I think that's just because as we have more and more very, like, you know, advanced techniques coming up, it becomes impossible. So you can't do everything everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, I am a zoo, like I, I self-identify as a zoo archaeologist. <laughs> you know, I'm also a paleolithic archaeologist, sure. right? Um, so it's sort of different, different hats that you wear. But yes, so zoo archaeology has been a growing subfield. I mean, I think it technically kind of goes back to the 50s, but um, it has expanded a lot. It used to just be like in a given archaeology paper, you might have one table with like a species list. Of, that's mm -hmm. it. Um, and now you have zoo archaeologists who are involved from like the very beginnings of projects, making sure people are sampling appropriately, thinking about like what are the nature of the questions. And it's, you know, generally speaking, like very sort of hypothesis or question driven research. Yeah. And what are some of the methods and 
well, we'll start with, what are some of the methods that zoo archaeologists use for, or you can, you know, if you want to talk exactly about like Sabudu or your current research? So in some ways, sort of traditional zoo archaeology is what I kind of call an old school science or like a slow science, because it takes, it takes a long time. You need large samples to actually be able to sort of actually hope to get some real mm -hmm. insight into human behavior. And depending on the site that you're working on, you, you see a lot of variation in how fragmented an assemblage is. And the more broken the bones are, the more difficult they are to identify, like yes. both to, you know, body parts, so skeletal element, but mm -hmm. certainly also to the, the taxon or species of the animal. Yeah. Um, and in order to do it right, you need access to a large comparative collection of living animals. Um, I mean, and ideally for like each species that you have that might be present at your site, you would like to have a collection that has males and females, young and old, yeah. so that you can get a sense of variation in that species, right? Because there is, of course, individual variation in every species. Like we think about this for humans a lot in human osteology, mm -hmm. but sometimes people don't think about that that's actually important in zoo archaeology as well. Yeah. So if your comparative collection only has one deer, like that's actually not like, and we're using that to try to match yes. to everything. Like, you know, you might have something that doesn't match so nicely because you're just looking at one individual. It's not capturing that variation. Yes. And I will specify skeletals uh, skeletal collections of currently living animals. Yes, some people have paleontological collections as well. Okay. And so in South Africa, for instance, you have an incredibly diverse um, fauna. So lots and lots of different species, um, which makes it complicated place to work. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means you really need access to a very good comparative collection. Um, and the best comparative collections in Southern Africa are at um, the Ditsong Museum of Natural History, which is in Pretoria, um, and the University of Cape Town. Okay. Um, and so that's where I would say most zoo archaeology, there are other smaller museums that have collections that are not as extensive as those two. So I would say a lot, most, most zoo archaeologists who are doing work in Southern Africa do a lot of their sort of basic data collection at one of those two places, mm -hmm. uh, because that's where you can access the sort of best comparative collections. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so really, like when you're doing faunal work, What's important to have is that comparative collection and like desk space. Otherwise mm -hmm. you need like a pair of calipers and a scale yeah. and that's sort of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not, it's not that much, but like there, as, as we've developed as a field and as the archae, what we call the archeological sciences have expanded, there's now more sort of um, biochemistry sorts of techniques that you can apply to mm -hmm. animal bones. So we can do stable isotope research. Yeah. We can do paleoproteomics which is, is you know, using, yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> that's called, well, zooms is the most common form, so that's zoo archaeology by mass spectrometry, oh, um, and so that is when they were, so um, it's mostly based on type 1 collagen, um, so that is something that will preserve much better than DNA. So it preserves oh, on a much longer okay. time period, period than ancient DNA. And like running the samples, it can be really, really cheap. So most of the facilities these days are actually in Europe because there's more money for research in yeah. Europe than there is in the US. <laughs> uh, but I feel like in some cases it can be as low as like five to $10 a sample to wow. run, run these specimens. That's, and wow. as people have, you know, the, this technique has really just developed in the last 10 years. Um, but it's amazing because... Um, what they found is that this type one collagen has essentially a fingerprint that you can use to identify things too. I mean, sometimes you can get all the way to the species more often you can get like to the genus level, but that can be really helpful because we have a lot of like 
you know, if you have a fragmented assemblage, you have a lot of just pieces of like bone shaft fragments, like a femur shaft fragment or a tibia shaft. And you can't necessarily tell, like oftentimes there's not going to be any indicator what the animal is yeah. or even necessarily which long bone it is, yes. right? If you just have this like fragment, you know, three centimeter long fragment mm -hmm. of a shaft. But because this zooms is like cheap, all things considered, I mean, of course, doing it just with a collection is like, right? You just have to get access to the collection. So you still have some kind of cost, but because it can be done quickly and relatively cheaply, it means that these like isolated pieces that couldn't otherwise be identified can now be identified. Oh, that's really and interesting. what's become really sort of interesting about this is that all of a sudden, all these collections, and we call them the like less identified or unidentified uh -huh. shaft fragments that zoo archaeologists have in their hands, biological anthropologists are becoming interested um, and there are multiple archaeologists in Europe who have gotten like multi-million euro grants to just run a bunch of these because, of course, mm -hmm. human remains or Neanderthal remains have a distinct signature. And because this preserves better than ADNA, that you are using important. this yeah. technique, they're maybe less interested in the identification of the animal species. <laughs> Um, but they're more interested in trying to pull out hominids. Yeah. Um, and if if it does have collagen preserved, then it might also be directly datable with radiocarbon dating. It might then also have DNA, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good way to screen. Like if it doesn't have the, the type one collagen enough to do this, it's not going to have DNA. Mm -hmm. So it's also now being used as a screening method. Mm, um, so it's a technique that was originally developed in zooarchaeology. I would think some of the earliest um, uses of this technique were actually to distinguish sheep from goat. Oh. So like looking at morphology, it yes. can actually be really difficult to distinguish between those. But when you're thinking about the origins of agriculture yes. and the development of agricultural it's economies, really it can be really important. Yeah. And so like this, this actually one of the things that this technique was used for was to allow people to distinguish between sheep and goat. That's very funny because yeah. the first one only zooarchaeology class I've taken was with Dr. Sarah McClure at UCSB. And she would tell us, she's like, I just created a category sheep goat because I couldn't yes which we sometimes call shoats yes or geese like because or... you just couldn't distinguish so that's yeah. interesting because that that's pings a memory in, in my head of, of Sarah saying that yeah. um so thank you for talking about that what were some of your um like long story short conclusions from Sabudu or even just what the remains indicated to you in your dissertation right so I actually continued to work so this is also one of those things like sometimes people say oh once you finish your dissertation you should immediately move on to a different project like don't keep working at the same site like it's good to show diversity and maybe that's true but like the site that I was working on was like so spectacular yeah. and it had so many different time periods that I couldn't delve into in mm -hmm. my dissertation that I actually did two more like grant funded projects that continued to expand the sample um, from Cebudu. Um, so now I'm going to make the picture more complicated. So I just, I mentioned what I was originally focused on was the Howie Sport, where you have this time period in which we have these early indicators of sort of advanced behaviors. I'm using air quotes around advanced, but I mean, I think that's, that's I don't think we even need the air quotes actually. Yeah. They are, they're more advanced. Um, but the Howie Sport is also preceded by another archaeological culture called the Still Bay, which is also found in South Africa. And the Still Bay is sort of more in the 75 to 70-ish thousand year time frame. It has different indicators mm. of advanced behavior than what we see in the Howison's Port. Interesting. We have these like really finely made um, spear points that mm -hmm. look a lot like what we see in much later time periods in Europe. They're using um, heat treatment of mm. the, the church's 
or the flint, depending on what you want to call it. Um, and that's so that what that means when I say heat treatment is essentially they're putting they're exposing the stone to heat to a particular set of temperatures, which makes it easier to nap. So it makes mm. it easier to remove really fine flakes and make sort of really thin really nice looking tools yeah. um, it also really changes the, and it also changes the color okay um, which maybe is a part of the purpose but what we found from experiments is it's not straightforward because you need a very specific range of temperatures and usually have to be buried under the ground and mm. it's like the idea that like i've watched people do these experiments and they have all these like temperature probes and things yeah. and that ancient people just somehow were like able to figure this out like, yeah without I, any think, of that. I think like, about that a lot yeah so we had not only did this still they have that but it also had engraved ochre and shell beads um, so it was a different package of these mm -hmm. advanced behaviors than what we see in the Howison Sport. So Subudu has the still bay and the Howison Sport and what comes before and after, okay, which makes yeah. it an amazing yes. sequence to look at, especially for, again, the animal bones. But we, you always want to put the, the faunal remains, the mm -hmm. animal bones, alongside the plant remains mm -hmm. and other you know, geoarchaeological data, so data from the sediments. Mm -hmm. And so we could, I, what I really ended up doing over that, that sort of 10-year period that I was working at Cebudi was sort of looking across that whole span to see what do the animal bones tell us about how climate is changing? How does that compare to like broader scale climate records? Um, and what's I guess neat about what we're finding is that sort of coming into the still bay. So that's when we see the onset of these behaviors for the first time. And most of most of these things that we're seeing, it's the first time anywhere in the world that we're seeing them. Mm -hmm. We don't, at least at the site of Subudu, we don't see really any evidence for changes in the fauna that are consistent with environmental change. Okay. Um, from the still bay to the Howison's port, where you have this like almost like wholesale change in technology and different material, different material culture, but advanced. Also, not a lot of like sort of significant changes. Mm -hmm. um, when we get to the Howison's port to the post Howison's port, we have the end of that that the cold period. Um, when I first did my work, and I looked at the Howison's port as a whole compared to the post Howison's port as a whole, it it looked like maybe there was climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was like, okay, but this isn't a very high resolution picture because that post Howison sport period in the sequence, it was like 70, centi uh, 70 centimeters deep. So it's a long mm -hmm. sequence to lump. And so I said, we need to split it and we need a larger sample from sort of both halves to yeah. really look at the transition. And when we did that, um, what we saw was that from the Howison sport to the post Howison sport, there's very little evidence for change. There's a lot of change within the post Howison sport. Mm -hmm. So I mean, and it almost becomes like a night and day shift in the fauna from like lots of things that live in forests and closed environments to lots of things that live in sort of open, mm -hmm. like acacia woodland, like zebra and wildebeest yeah. and things. Um, so there definitely is climate change happening, but it's happening out of sync. It's not happening at the transition in mm -hmm. technology and material culture. It's happening within a phase where there's sort of a lot of variability happening, but not those other signatures, um, which is not really what we were expecting to find. Yeah. Does that ever make you think, though, that maybe the dating methods are like for the maybe the dates could be off well so the dates yeah so anything that we're dating in this time period and here we're talking sort of 60 to 58 thousand years ago right we have like a plus minus two thousand years right yeah like that's a lot of human generations that's high resolution for us that's a lot of generations yeah. um but so right so maybe what's happening is that well right so what like it, it looks to me so what we know about Subudu is that the stratigraphy is like 
it's like really well preserved and you mm -hmm. see these like really nice like distinctions between layers not a lot of mixing between the layers right so very important and when we they have taken multiple dates from that sequence and they overlap so that shows okay. that like it's, yeah they're they're in they're generally in the right order but they're overlapping with each other with the level of resolution that we have um so there really does seem to be something different happening so during that occupational phase something changes over time mm -hmm. but we know that i mean the howison's port so yeah, so basically it seems like the Howison's port maybe ends before the climate change, maybe. Okay. But right, this is where it starts to get really tricky when you think about like, as the, when you have these changes happening, you know, how many generations does it take for a forest to become a grassland? Yeah. Naturally. Um, and I feel like thinking about these time scales, it's like, it's really difficult mm -hmm. um, to sort of conceive some of these things. Yeah. And like, I mean, even so thinking about a, a completely different environment, thinking about how fast these changes happen. I mean, one good example of this is if you look like in Central America at Maya sites, mm -hmm. you know, the all things considered, we're not, we're talking about what, eight, 900 CE. So like 1100 years ago and they had entirely cleared these sites to build these massive you know, temples and sites mm -hmm. and and now they're completely even the temples are completely under jungle yeah. right so like sure. in a thousand years you mm -hmm. have like complete jungle yeah like large dense, full dense, dense trees jungle. that's a thousand years right and here yeah. we're talking about this minus two thousand years right yeah so there are time periods in which like a lot can change mm -hmm. and right so our ability there's always going to be some like gray space where we just, because we can't, we would love to get to like annual, like annual mm -hmm. variations. Almost certainly not going to happen yes. for these time periods. So we yeah. have to think sort of broader. But I think it is interesting to discuss, you know, the, those things and explain, you know, why there is some still variability, things that could change as methods improve or just right. as new evidence is unearthed because right. our excavation is still going on it um yes the site actually was so dr wadley retired um and then the project was taken over by dr nicholas connard at the university of tubingen um, he's actually an american um, but has been at the university of tubingen almost his entire career or maybe his entire career um and he directs um He's essentially the director of the Archaeological Institute there. Um, they have a lot of different departments in archaeology. Um, and I actually did a postdoc. Um, so I did, well, after my PhD, I had a research position at the University of Tübingen. He was actually my postdoc supervisor. Um, and that was, had, so he took over the site in 2012. And my postdoc was from 2011 to 2012. Okay. So since he was in the process of taking over the site, it was kind of was a natural fit for somewhere to me to go to work on writing up these results, yeah, right? for sure. Because um, it takes a, a while to do all of the... Oh, it takes Yes, it does. Um, so let's transition into the next phase of your career, which was as a professor. Um, I know you did some assistant or no adjuncting, um, but we won't really dive into that. We don't have we don't have all day. Yeah. But um, you landed at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Yes. Um, which, oh, my gosh, I want to go visit Alaska so badly. And I'm staring at these beautiful artwork pieces that we've, oh, yes. we've talked about before that always just evoke to me like. Alaska they're so pretty um what are some of your most fond memories or core memories from that time there whether that's you know personal or professional right definitely a very pivotal time in your life yes yeah, so I moved to Fairbanks from Germany in 2012 so that was a big transition yeah um so my parents live in Tennessee and so since I was moving from Germany to Alaska I actually went 
we sort of Tennessee was sort of my home base and then some friends or and acquaintances and I drove from Nashville to Fairbanks um which is like we did it in six days it's like whoa how many thousand four to six thousand miles whoa yeah um so that was like I mean that was sort of a and we did it it was the end of July so the Ooh. weather was beautiful we yeah, saw like we drive through so many mountains mm-hmm. so we saw so many bears and yeah. bison and all these things um so the drive was amazing so long yeah so long. my mind is hurting thinking <laughs> about that um so many days in the car um and then I did it on the other side when I was coming here during the pandemic with a cat in my car oh so wow yeah. lot but um anyway so Fairbanks is a very unique place in a lot of reasons so it's about two I think what 250 miles or something like that south of the Arctic Circle okay. um the first year that I lived there snow started falling in mid-September and it didn't melt until mid-May wow. so what that meant was between September and May like you never really saw the ground because the thing about Fairbanks is once it gets cold enough to snow it very rarely gets above freezing again. Okay. So it's like one of the, to me, one of the most bizarre things about Fairbanks is that you know, with climate change, it is actually, we it's more likely there to periodically have days where it gets above freezing. And those are the days in which school is canceled. So when it is too oh. warm in the wintertime, that means that things melt and it yes. becomes icy. So yes. that's when they cancel that's school. Interesting. And when they cancel school, they tend to cancel with you know, you classes at the university uh-huh. as well. Um, so we never have snow days. I don't think we have one snow day, but we have ice days when it's That's too interesting. warm, which is weird. That is interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just a like, I think one of my sort of favorite Fairbanks stories is that there was one year in the wintertime where I was late to class and to email my students and tell them like, I'm still coming, I'm just late. Because when I left my house, there was, there were two baby moose just sitting right in front of my door, sort of between me and my car. Oh, no. But then on the other side of my car, on the other side of the street, was the mama moose. You do not no. walk between a nope. mama moose and her babies. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I literally cannot leave my house until yeah. these baby moose go away. So until then, I just, yeah. just sit tight. I'll get there. Um, so <laughs> like, goodness. where else are you going to be late to work? Because you can yeah. walk Wyoming the baby moose. Yes. I say that having kids. Or like Mo- Montana. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, in case anyone ever, you don't get between a mama moose and her babies. I mean, I would say that goes for pretty much any mama animal, but particularly moose that are very, very big and aggressive. Very large. Uh, Yes. Uh, that's definitely interesting. And what was, that would have been like your first experience, like really being, um, in the role of a professor, having graduate students advising, creating curriculum what was that experience like what did you take from that into now being at George Mason right so yes I so I so my master's degree we didn't actually touch on this my master's degree so the way that master's degrees work at University of Michigan you know you do court you're getting the master's on the way to a PhD but you have to do what's called like a prelim paper which is basically like a master's thesis and it's meant to Mm -hmm. be a publishable paper and so my prelim paper was actually in biological anthropology, oh, not in archaeology. I was actually looking at um, um, artificial cranial modification oh. in the Philippines in the Iron Age, of all things. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I did have experience in training in biological anthropology. And in fact, I was employed, once I finished my NSF GRFP, my graduate research fellowship, I was actually employed 
um, as a research assistant at the Museum of Anthropology there doing um, NAGPRA compliance work and work with mm. human skeletal remains. So I had a fair amount of biowork experience. So that's important because when I got to University of Alaska Fairbanks, we had a biological anthropologist um, who mostly focused on human skeletal remains. His name was Dr. Joel Irish. Um, he actually had taken a job in the UK. Mm. He's somewhere in Liverpool, I believe. Um, and he, because the hire came up, like, so oftentimes with academic hiring, the hires happen sort of between January and March, and you start in following fall. His hire was sort of a late season hire, and so he didn't know he was moving until the summer, oh. and he didn't tell his incoming graduate students until they arrived in Fairbanks. And there were two of them who had come to Fairbanks to work with him, and he was leaving. And so because I had experience in biological anthropology, I adopted these students coming in, wow. and I was like, oh, okay. And then there was an archaeology. Oh, so that was your first year? That was my first year wow. as a, okay. a right. tenure-track faculty member. Wow. And then there was another student who had been admitted in archaeology. <laughs> but we also, at that point, there was only one archaeologist in the program. So I was the second one. Mm -hmm. And so that person was overwhelmed with students. And so this other archaeology student who had been accepted, but not with a specific student kind of ended up with me by default. Got it. So I had wow. three, like, mm -hmm. but it was like three wonderful, amazing, really focused, really smart female students Great. who I adopted immediately, who were all new to graduate school at the same time I was new to being a <laughs> A faculty member. I wish you guys could see my face right um, now. <laughs> none of whom did work or were interested in doing work, anything related to what I do. Um, because people who go to Fairbanks for math, like they have a PhD program, but most of their graduate students are master's students who are interested in doing like cultural resource management or CRM work okay. in Alaska. Yeah. Um, and so to get those full-time jobs in Alaska, you need a master's degree, right? So that was what yeah. most of our students were interested in. Um, so they wanted to work in Alaska, which of course I had no experience. So it was like helping helping them conceive of projects and sort of seeing them through projects as an advisor that were sort of out very much out of my discipline uh -huh. um, or like at least out of my like primary area of focus. That was a lot. Um, and so one of them ended up doing sort of a G, like sort of a literature based GIS project looking at incidences of like skeletal signatures of like anemia as compared like in the southeastern US using published record based on like GIS mapping of where you would expect high parasite loads because she was expecting mm -hmm. there to be a relationship between those things. And so she did this like GIS spatial analysis project. Um, one of them actually had done as an undergraduate, thank goodness. Um, a field school in, I think it was Portugal, and had to a, a, that had a bioarchaeology component, and actually like got permission from the people she had worked with as an undergraduate student to get access to skeletal material to do a diet-based isotope study. Mm, okay. Um, so looking at changes in diet, um, actually looking, I think also skeletal indicator, skeletal indicators of various kinds of disease and stress as compared to what the carbon and nitrogen were telling us about their diet. Um, and then the third student, the one who was the archaeologist, ended up actually doing a zoo archaeological project, but also doing a stable isotope-based project, um, looking at migration patterns of um, bison in Alaska during the Pleistocene, That's so during the Ice Age, so both before and after human arrival. Yeah. Um, so none of, none of those are related to what I do. I had sort of dabbled in isotopes as a graduate student, but luckily we had a researcher on campus at that time, so she was she would teach for us occasionally, but mostly was doing research. She did stable isotopes who could be on the committee and like really help that work yeah. happen because we had the lab facilities, um, and I decided it was a good idea to have two of those students defend the same week. Oh, 
that was really not a good life choice for me because then, you know, it's like frantically getting through yeah. last drafts of, a, of yeah. my thesis at the same time while also teaching the whole bit of loads. So. Yeah. Lot. but they all finished within two and a half years yay because our program so here at george mason which you may have talked about our program is typically a two-year program which is pretty fast for a master's program yeah um at fairbanks it was really because we had more sort of intense coursework and more sort of intense thesis requirements it really was usually a three-year program but we had students who like would excavate entire sites for their master's thesis and so that meant like finding yeah. the money, excavating the yeah. site, mm -hmm. finding, doing the analysis themselves or finding people to farm it out. So they might take four or five years and then have a 250 page master's thesis that really is a dissertation TBH. Yes. Um, and that was not uncommon at Phoenix. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I was very proud of the fact that I got my students yes. and into the world. I mean, I was lucky as an uh, as a graduate student because John Speth was a wonderful advisor. And in fact, Milford Wolfoff, who wasn't officially my co-chair, was basically my unofficial co-chair and was also incredibly supportive. So I sort of grew up as a student sort of being aware of I guess one of the things one of the things that's important for me to be is is boundaries <laughs> between students and faculty, like because it's it's They're delicate in graduate school. It's delicate in graduate school. And I consider graduate students as my colleagues. Mm -hmm. But like, I also like, for instance, I have relatively, I mean, this is all a personal choice. Like I don't drink with my students. Yeah. And I, you know, like there are like things that I, for me is important. Mm -hmm. And also like the other thing that was important to me, I think I was lucky in part because my committee, because they were sort of seen so senior and both of them are retired now, I feel like they had actually, because they were so senior in their career and so comfortable where they were, they had sort of more of a sense of work-life balance. And it became very important for me to like Good. sort of demonstrate to students that work-life balance was like important and that it was possible. Um, and that, you know, it does mean like there's periods of compartmentalized, very focused work. And of course, when you're working on a master's degree thesis, there are going to be times where you have to work on nights or weekends. It is going to happen. Yeah. But, yes. but there are limits and there should be no, I mean, I actually had, it's funny because one of my other colleagues at University of Alaska Fairbanks, he and I was a young faculty member sort of came into my office and was like, how many hours a week are you working? Like, if you're not working at least 60 hours a week, you're doing it wrong. And I was like, nope that is not the life I live um, and also the life I want to live. and and to say that you're doing it wrong if you're not doing that is just very like toxic honestly because everyone's that's like so common right it's so common right this idea that if you want to get tenure you need to be working like a 60 to 80 hour week and I mean imagine if you actually like if you talk to a lot of pre-tenure faculty and tried to get them to assess their number of hours per week it probably is always sort of at or around 60 or that's a problem it is a problem and and I actually I mean it was really like <laughs> once I got especially once I got tenure and I was just like no yes like I am aiming for a 40 hour work week that's what it should be mm -hmm. um and it should be possible yes and um, I think I think honestly like I have some strong opinions about academia that are today it's not not the day <laughs> um but I think in my thesis project I'll probably be talking a bit about that um is that currently it is a it's a toxic environment the way that work is promoted and that and honestly, the amount of responsibility that is given to you as a tenured faculty, I personally, I do not agree with the amount of 
things that you all are required to do. Um, again, I could literally go on a whole rant. Okay, so Alaska Fairbanks, now you're at George Mason. Yes. Um, is Jen your first grad student? I know you've been on committees, but is she your first like full? Yes, student? and so this was a really tricky thing when I came here because when I accepted the job here, and I should say, um, you know, I did have tenure at University of Alaska Fairbanks. Um, the reason why I decided to leave right? Because this is like some people say, you know, it's not uncommon to sort of to move jobs when you are pre-tenured. It's yeah. a lot different to move when you are tenured. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason that I, I had sort of two reasons for wanting to leave Alaska, um, one of which was that they had a Republican governor who they might oh. still have, um, who proposed massive budget cuts to the state system um, such that there was a period of time in which the budget cuts were so severe um, this was in it would have been the summer of 2019 um, the budget cuts were so serious that they did what is called declaring financial exigency I think that's how you pronounce it and what that does is it removes the protections of tenure mm. and so they said if we can't figure out a way to make this work, they, they literally were saying we might have to, to fire 30% of our faculty in the middle of the academic year wow. that we're cutting programs. And wow. because we've declared financial exigency, it means the protections of tenure are no longer valid. Wow. And so I was like, okay, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. Like this is not, this is not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and I had been sort of applying for jobs when there were things that sort of interested me here or there. But the other thing was that like Fairbanks is a very difficult place to live. It's 40 below. That's <laughs> the actual air temperature. Like, like the last year, there's 16 days at 40 below or colder. There's only three hours of daylight in the winter. And that daylight is like the sun barely coming above the horizon. Oh, wow. So it's like twilight. Like that's the only mm -hmm. light you have. Yeah. That's very difficult on your body, on yeah, everyone's and body health. and brain. Yeah. yeah. And so like that, and so being there for eight years, that's a lot. It's also not a place to be a single woman with a PhD okay, a yeah. successful dating life. Um, and my family is like in Tennessee and Virginia. Yeah. So like it just, I wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they had, they advertised a position here and they like expressed particular interest in somebody who did sort of environmental archaeology. Um, and I actually had applied for a job at George Mason in 2015 that I interviewed for, but didn't get and so I was like, I'm going to try again. Yay. Um, and so. We're so thankful you did. Yes. And so I was very happy to come to George Mason um, in part because it was like the region of the, of the, the like country that I wanted to be in. I have a sister and her husband and their six and a half year old live Aww. two and a half miles from me. Yeah. Um, so like I get to be near family um, and I get to be near DC, which I really enjoy. And the fact that it is like that. This university does not just like pay lip service to diversity. It is actually an incredibly diverse campus. Um, and that Every makes time. me so happy. And mm -hmm. like, it has a very large population of first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important for like, I, I mean, and University of Alaska also has a very diverse student body, like, at, like you know, diverse economically in terms of race, gender, age, like all of those things were there as well, but it's even more so here mm -hmm. than it was there. And I like really appreciate it. And that was really important to me. Yeah. So I was like really happy to get the job here. Yeah. Well, but I'm. you were asking, by the way, this all went back to you asking me about graduate students. Yeah. So the tricky thing about being here is that we are a university with 40,000 students now officially. Wow. Um, and I am the only archaeologist. Yes. 
Um, and so, since I am the only archaeologist, I do well, a lot traditional of- archaeologists because we have Bio-archeolo- no, but they're trained in biological anthropology. Yes. They're yes. not archaeologists, I know. and they don't. Well, Dr. Klaus teaches yes. a little bit of archaeology. He, he is more so. Jesus. His master's, yeah. I think, actually maybe was archaeologist. It was. To be fair. It was. Um, but they he's a biological not. anthropologist, <laughs> and so my teaching is mostly intro to archaeology and mm-hmm. world prehistory, and then I teach like one or two, depending on my like teaching load upper division classes per year. Um, so this wasn't a situation to come into where I could really recruit graduate students because what classes are they going to take? Like they can only take bio classes or some cultural classes like or one archaeology class a year. Yeah. You, you can't do a master's degree in archaeology really where you're only taking one archaeology class yeah. per year. Oh, 100%. Um, and so I do have one student now um, who is lovely, um, who actually came through our Bachelor to Accelerate a Master's program. And one of the reasons I was actually okay with accepting a student in that case is that uh, my student Jen has been here so long that she has taken archaeology. She's had four years to take archaeology mm-hmm. classes. And zooarchaeology itself is like, it's really hard to do a zooarchaeology project in two years, especially if you came in without zooarchaeological experience, mm-hmm. because like, yeah, you can't even start until you've had that training. And so Jen took that class with me as an undergraduate a couple of springs ago. And so she was actually able to get started on a project. So I still have some material from Alaska that I work on in classes and I have in my lab because I've maintained my connections at University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so there was a project for her. Um, but like I have students actually now, like undergraduates who are like, oh, I want to do that too. And it's like, I don't think you're going to be able to. Mm-hmm. And you know, I get emails from students like, hey, are you accepting master's students? Like, we don't even have an archaeological theory class at like the undergrad level, much less at the grad level. Yeah. And like, especially if a student is thinking that they want to go into a PhD, they need that training. Yes. That they can't get here. Yes. Well, so, I think that's good for people to know in case they're listening and they're yes. thinking about applying to work with you. Um, you know, again, maybe we'll be in a position later on where that's changed. We are the, trying to the hire pro- The program is developing, I would say, quite a bit because um, it is on the newer side for, for a master's program, yes. at least at the with the current focuses of the current faculty. Yes. Um, it's definitely in a, in a developmental stage. Um but also a lot of us that our grad students here don't have the opportunity to do field work even as bioarchaeologists so obviously like that that is a big factor I tell people like that are interested in in coming to work here is that um or to study here is is you know unless you're working with Dr. Klaus you're you're not going in the field really right um that's just kind of how it is um and even then like there are limited opportunities to go to Peru right um and that's just how it is you know for what it is um so I would love to dive into your archaeology of climate change class that is one of the classes that you get to teach um that's an upper division class um so what was the inspiration for starting that class um and if maybe the ins- maybe not so much inspiration is doesn't catch your fancy, we could always talk about the goals for that class. Right. Um, so I actually developed that class in Fairbanks. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, maybe that makes it. So it, I actually didn't teach it until my very last year in Fairbanks. Okay. Um, because, of course, when I very first started, I had a lot of required classes that I had to develop. Yeah. And developing courses is a ton of work. Um, and so I had to be very strategic about what classes that I was developing. 
Um, but one of the classes I taught there was actually Anthropology 101, which is a four-field introduction to anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I taught that with sort of a very applied focus. And that made me start thinking about like the applied potential of archaeology more. Because that's always something like, I feel like I once, there was once, I was once on a job interview and they were like, if you had to explain what you did to like someone working at the grocery store cashier, how would you explain it in a way that they would think it was important? And I'm like, ah, that's really hard. <laughs> like when you work deep in prehistory, it's like, yeah, people are fundamentally interested in like, what does it mean to be human, I think. But like, it's like, why is what I do, like, why is my research specifically important to the world? I'm like, it's like, it's harder to talk about than you might think. But yes, as yes. I was teaching that class and thinking about the applied potential of archaeology, and of course, in Fairbanks, like in the, in the Arctic, in Alaska, like, the, like climate change is like a huge yeah. area of discussion in the public and policy sphere, but also in like, they have like the top institutes like for Arctic biology in the world, right? And so it's a thing that a lot of people are interested in from different perspectives and in different um disciplines so i thought actually this was a, a particular place where developing a class that was looking at the contributions that archaeology can make to the study of climate change in the sort of past in the present and maybe in the future it was like a, a good place to sort of develop that course yeah. um and then when i was interviewing for this job it was sort of it was discussed like oh you're teaching that there like that's actually something we would really like to teach here because there also is a broader interest in sort of societal issues and applications of archaeology to these sort of big questions and so i continued to teach it here yeah um and the big question if you feel like it answering it and it could be based on what we talked about in class because I feel like you would pose to us quite frequently, you know, how do you think archaeology, specifically climate change research, is applicable to the present and even future? Um, are there things that have kind of inspired you from class or just your own opinions of how you feel that that research is playing playing a role? Right. I mean, I think it plays a lot of different roles that I think not everyone is aware of. So I actually got, because I, I taught the class my first year at Mason, that was pandemic year in 2020, so 2021. And like the Dean's office actually heard that I was teaching it and they invited me to participate in this panel with faculty from across Mason thinking about climate change. And so I was talking about the role of archeology span and studying climate change and like these engineers and others were like, oh, I never even thought about that, right? Because one of the important things about the archeological record, right, it goes so much much deeper than the historical yeah. record and even when we have a historical record we know it's not telling the whole story mm -hmm. so if we want to understand so one the like full range right because I mean I, I try to get I try not to get into arguments with like climate deniers um, yeah and it is very true that like even without human like anthropogenic impacts climate changes right mm -hmm. um and so but if we want to understand the nature the sort of nature and time timing of changes in the past, right? The geological record can tell us about some of that, you know, paleontology, climatology, like deep time record. But if we want to know about how humans were interacting with those changes in the past, um, how they were responding to it and how even, you know, earlier humans, you know, even pre-modern humans were impacting their environments. If we want to understand all of those things, um, we need the archaeological record. Um, and one of the things the archaeological record also shows us is how unprecedented what's happening now actually yes. is, which is actually also important, I think, when yes. you're trying to talk to people who are arguing against human impacts on mm -hmm. the environment. Um, but I think it is also like, a, and I think a lot of people who like work in this sphere have talked about this, but it, I think it's really important for sort of demonstrating 
cases of sort of resiliency versus cases of collapse in mm -hmm. the past, trying to look for are there underlying similarities in places where, you know, groups have succeeded in adapting to changes in climate, whereas other instances where there was failure of a system, like, are there things, and yes, we're talking about a different scale of human and a different scale of globalization, but like, are there lessons that we can yeah. pull from that that might be useful? Um, and what's funny is, I think this is something that sort of, it came up a bit when I was teaching the class last spring, so the, the class that you were in. So like the time period that I'm working on and a lot of the people that um, I'm focused, that I'm working with are looking at include things like, so a time period called the last glacial maximum, which is about 26 yeah. to 19,000 years ago. And it was the period we can know from like looking at these records that the changes were happening rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I actually have mostly been focused on what's happening at the onset of the last glacial maximum, which is a period of climatic cooling, mm -hmm. right? And I do think it's relevant to think about how were people responding to climatic cooling, but that is actually the opposite of yeah, the problem that we are experiencing sure. today, which is why I think there are folks who are doing research on the other side of the last glacial maximum, so the end of the ice ages, so the transition into what we call the Holocene, um, especially doing work, there's really cool work happening like in the UK and in Northern Europe, looking at how populations were, were responding to like rising sea levels. Yeah. Um, and I think sort of that time period particularly is going to be really, I think, important, like Again, it's not that it's not useful to think about how did people respond to global cooling, but I think it is more salient and maybe will be like more, it'll be easier for people to conceptualize mm -hmm. when we look at all, when we're also looking at those examples of how were people responding to periods of global warming and rising sea level in the past. Definitely. Yeah, and I definitely took a lot from that class and it makes you think about things just in a different way. Like you were saying, talk like understanding resilience and different, even for example, if we're not talking about like deep prehistory, like how indigenous peoples in Alaska res are responding to climate change nowadays that still practice traditional life ways. Um, it's very important to kind of think about the nuance, the nuances of that. Um, and, uh, was a really thought provoking class for me. And I'm, I'm really glad I got to take it. And I'm sad that I don't get to take another class with you before I graduate, but I know you're busy and yeah. it's okay. I, like I said, I could go on a soapbox about how you shouldn't, not just you, but how professors shouldn't just have to teach all the intro classes. My soapbox theory is that they should hire people that, um, can just teach and not all professors need to be researchers. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but that's just my two cents. There aren't adjuncts that are getting paid barely enough to live. Yes, so. and just, just FYI, George Mason does have that path. It is not tenure track, it's called term faculty. So the difference between an, ad, so an adjunct rate course by course, contracted for individual courses, term faculty have a contract. Sometimes they're year by year, other times they're three to five years at a time and they teach a heavier load and they're, they're like teaching and some service. Um, and they do get paid less and they shouldn't because they're teaching more. And so that is something, but that's something actually Mason is thinking about trying to fix. But the nice thing about Mason is that term faculty here, although again, they do make a little bit less money and in some ways they feel like they're treated like second-class citizens compared to other places that I've mm -hmm. been, um, term faculty get a lot more respect and the mm. administration recognizes the importance of faculty whose primary goal is teaching. That's interesting. Um, I didn't know that at all. Yes. And in fact, like it's so, they have so 
try to normalize those positions as being faculty positions like any other. Like if you look at the department website in sociology and anthropology, and we don't have any term faculty in anthropology right now, but we do in sociology, but on department websites, it doesn't say term. That's good. So like someone, and you can move through the ranks, there's term assistant, term associate, term professor, like full professor. Yeah. And when you look at their website, so someone who's a term full professor, it just says professor. It doesn't mm -hmm. say term professor. That's so good. they give them the same title. Yeah. And so you actually wouldn't know, like yeah. so that in a way that the, you don't see that they exist, yeah. right? Because the, the word term isn't there. Yeah. But that's actually something about that Mason has been doing. And they're trying to there is now a, com a committee to try to think about how those people can be given permanent. So something like tenure. Interesting. So that they, even though here we have, we haven't historically since I've been here, like none of, I, I don't think the term faculty in or in sociology are going anywhere. They've been here a very long time. Okay. Right. Um, but it is, it, it feels more contingent, right? Because they do still have annual or every three year contracts versus just having a settled contract. So yeah. like, I, I am hoping, I'm hopeful that like, even if they don't come up with like tenure mm -hmm. per se, that they come up with some type of job security that will measure. give them better job security. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I definitely didn't know that. Yes. Um, and cause I am interested, like I want to teach, but I don't really want to do research or get my PhD. And so it's something that I think about a lot, which is like how I think it could benefit, um, re research heavy, uh, professors such as yourself or Dr. Klaus or Dr. Temple giving them more time to do that and then also teach like the specialized classes that you all want to teach which ultimately better serves the graduate students which better serves the graduate students but I love teaching intro no and there's and there's nothing wrong with that yeah. at all I think of course like if you are passionate about teaching an yeah, intro yeah. class you should be right, able but teaching to it every semester yes and semester. then there are some and not necessarily like at George Mason I'm genuinely yeah. not like, thinking of anyone right. there are some people that hate teaching intro yes, to archaeology and so they don't want to and right. then they make the class terrible for example my intro to archaeology class that I took at UCSB was taught just awfully um lastly and I did not leave enough time for this but 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 so is so is life um okay. so is life uh this summer you were in um uh I'm just gonna let you yes. say it because I'm butchering it and it's a lovely word um Israel <laughs> and you were doing an NSF um funded excavation um there on questions focusing on human environment relationships yes and um in a geographic region um that facilitated intercontinental cultural exchanges could yes. you give us the reader's digest version of what you were doing okay yes we'll or just... maybe the goal gen more general goals right yeah, I guess we could say the more the more general goal. So I have like been very fortunate throughout my career to get involved with projects that have sort of long temporal spans mm -hmm. that capture a lot of important events in later human evolution. So Sephanim is another one of these sites that has it, the sort of lowermost deposits of the site are sort of more than 70,000 years old and its occupation associated with the Neanderthals. Okay. Um, then we have something that may or may not be transitional to the Upper Paleolithic, which is associated with anatomically modern humans. We have something that's from a period, so around 35,000 years ago called the Aurignation, mm. which is a, an industry associated with anatomically modern humans. But then we also have what's known as the Epipaleolithic, um, which is associated with the last glacial maximum. Mm -hmm. And so within the sort of bigger project, we're focusing on sort of two different things. One piece is looking at 
you know, like an interdisciplinary or I guess sort of across the, the specialties of art within archaeology, looking at the nature of changes in climate and human behavior from the, you know, like that transition between Neanderthals and modern humans. So can we see sort of key differences in what the modern humans are doing mm -hmm. that might help us understand their success, you know, or are, do we really find evidence that they're not doing anything very yeah. different than Neanderthals, in which case, you know, that raises its own set of questions. And then the second project is focused on those sort of later deposits looking at, because the last glacial maximum is a period um, in the near in the Near East, in the Southern Levant, there's a relatively small number of sites, especially those that have well-preserved um, animal bones. And we also mm -hmm. have some plant remains too. Um, so we don't really know a lot about what sort of what people were up to and how they were responding to this sort of change. Um, and so we're interested in sort of tracking how human behavior was changing um, with the last glacial maximum. And we're only two kilometers today from the Mediterranean coast. So okay. like when you're up at the site, you can see the ocean on a clear day. Um, but during the last glacial maximum, it probably was. So one of the things we're trying to do, so I'm working with someone at University of Connecticut, Dr. Guidon Hartman, who's doing stable isotope research. We're trying to sort of map changes in the coastal plain because during the last glacial maximum, probably um, the Mediterranean would have been 10 kilometers further away. Um, and so you have what's called a coastal plain developing, so it would have different fauna and flora than what you have today. So we're interested in sort of tracking those changes over time to see what are people, you know, so that they're fixed in place, right? They're, they keep mm -hmm. coming back to this cave, so, but the landscape around them is changing. Yeah. And we know that. So what are they, how, what are they doing sort of through this 50,000 year almost, um, or it is a 50,000 year sequence that has multiple hominin species. And so this year, this season, um, we were doing work, um, so my, the two people who run the project, the, the directors of the project are Dr. Ron Schimmelmitz, who's at the University of Haifa, and Dr. Andrew Kandel, who is at the Heidelberg Academy of Sciences and Humanities in Germany. Um, so um, Dr. Schimmelmitz got a Leakey Foundation grant to expand, specifically expand our sample from the deepermost, deepest deposits. So we didn't have a lot of, it's called the Mysterian, that's the name of the technology. Yeah. We didn't have a lot of like, because our excavation unit was small, so we needed to expand the units to get mm -hmm. a deeper sample or a better sample from the Mysterium, but also from those transitional layers, because mm -hmm. we don't understand yeah. um, what's happening there. Sure. Um, and so that was the goal of this season's excavation. Um, so we we're primarily focused in those, although in order to get through those, we had to dig more through mm -hmm. that upper the thing called the Upper Paleolithic yeah. of the Nation. So those were sort of the areas we were focused on this time. Um, and in an ideal world with funding, will you continue to go back and participate in this project or have you concluded your excavation? No. Um, so they started digging there in the new project there in 2013. Um, I think that they were originally sort of maybe hoping that we would get to bedrock this year and be done. And it seems like maybe we did finally hit bedrock in like a very small portion. Mm -hmm. um, but it's clear that there's a lot more sort of well-preserved deposit and the stratigraphy is complicated. Um, so there will be at least one more season. There will okay. need to be at least one more season for this project to feel comfortable that we understand what's happening. There might be two more seasons. Um, with my NSF grant, my funding is for the analysis, not for the excavation, although it includes funding to, to, you know, for me and a student, an undergraduate student from Mason to go to the site and participate in excavation. Um, but that, I think the funding goes through like February 2025. Okay, so, so there is some flexibility to, for that. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a very interesting. Um, and I look forward to hearing more about that. I'm sorry that that kind of got pushed to the end, That's but okay. you know, um, honestly, one of my favorite things about podcasting is that we never know where a conversation is going to go. And that's part of 
part of uh, the the joy of the way that this podcast is designed is that we just have a conversation and sometimes that means that we don't get to everything. But I've also found that with, um, you know, established uh, academics such as yourself, I need to allot a little bit more time. I kind of every time <laughs> get like this, you should have seen with Dr. Klaus, I had to be like, okay. I saw that your podcast was an hour and 40 minutes. I was like, Klaus. all right, we got to stop. We got to move on. <laughs> and that was it was two and a half hours. I cut it down. Yeah, I was like, he, he but he didn't want to go home and mow the lawn. So he wanted to keep talking. He's like, I'm so No, he literally was like, I have to mow the lawn when I get home. I don't want to do that. Let's keep talking. Yes, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for chatting with me. And um, the listeners are going to be very excited to hear from you. Thank you. Um, okay, Perfect. I have to end the recording. Yeah, I know. Sorry. We.